As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to episode 167 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I am, as you know by now, Adam. Today we conclude the story from last week from the south of England. As you will recall, Kenneth Regan wanted a legitimate vehicle for his criminal activity but had no money to buy a company, so he set about taking control of another business. This was Seba Freight, owned by Amajit Chohan. When we left the story, Kenneth had lured Amajit to a meeting in Stonehenge under the pretense of meeting Dutch businessmen interested in buying his business and was holding him captive and forcing him to sign documents so that Regan could take over Seba Freight. Okay, so we'll skip the usual music and news section as we covered this last week. But before we resume the story, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially the new members of this exclusive club. That is Carissa Attix, James McEwen, Jay Soderpop Parker, and Angelina Carla. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your support. And please enjoy the 30 plus bonus episodes and other exclusive content. And do please take a look at UKTrueCrime.com, where amongst the drivel written by me, there is an excellent recent article written by Joe, the founder of a new initiative called the Disappearance Investigation Network. Go and take a look. And whilst there, if you don't yet have your ticket for the live event in London on the 19th of February, you can buy one today. And why wouldn't you? I must also say a huge thank you to my friend and Bundy expert, EJ Hammond on Twitter, do follow her, who has been so helpful in helping me prepare amazing Bundy insight for the live events in London please check out her excellent Bundy website at bundyfile.com. That's B-U-N-D-Y-P-H-I-L-E.com. And a special thank you to Judith and Josie for being so kind to me this week, which is really so nice. As you probably know by now, I've got no time for confrontation, aggression and negativity. Do you? It's just so tiresome, isn't it? Tedious, when already life is just way too short. Okay, back to the story. Let's return to February 2003. On the 15th of February, leaving his accomplice Reese in Salisbury to mind Amajit Chohan, Regan and Hauncey travelled to Amajit's wife Nancy's home again in West London. What happened there was, well, it's just pretty hard to understand at all. So let's just stick to the terrible facts. Regan and Hauncey killed Nancy, her mum, Chandra Jokkar and her young sons Ravinda and Devinda 
probably by strangling them. Regan knew just what he was going to do next, and had hired a van to take the bodies of the family to the farm owned by Belinda Bruin in Devon. Regan knew that she was away at the time, and a day later, on the evening of February the 16th, Amajit was also murdered, three days after he'd been taken captive, thinking he was going to be selling his freight business to legitimate businessmen. Along with the rest of his family, his body was taken to the farm in Devon. Once there, the gang dug a ditch and buried the bodies and covered it with aggregates. They were taking no chances with a shallow grave where their bodies might be disturbed. Can you even imagine how this must have felt to do this? The reality of driving to the farm, feeling the weight of the bodies and unloading them into their final resting place. Regan had promised to sort a drainage ditch for Belinda, so he knew that if asked, he had a genuine reason to be on the land digging. And when he did see a couple of people, it was his normal gobby self, enjoying, as he might put it, a bit of banter. A few days later, on the 21st of February, Regan took Amajit's car to a friend of his in Southampton, who'd agreed to get rid of the vehicle for him. And as planned, he and his cronies arrived at Seba Freight, and with all the documentation signed by Amajit, enacted his plan to take the company. Interestingly, staff at the company were not that surprised when Regan told them that Amajit had got in a financial pickle over the cat deals and returned to India with his family. They were told he left in a hurry as the situation closed in and had signed over the company to Regan and he had all the signed paperwork to prove it. So as far as Regan was concerned, it was almost job done. Of course, to any normal thinking person, the prospect of wiping out a whole family purely for financial gain is hard to comprehend. But Regan felt by doing this he'd covered all of the bases, and he was once again untouchable. It was just a matter of time before the money started rolling in, and Captain Cash would be back. And at the risk of sounding like a Scooby-Doo script, he might just have got away with it, had it not been for Nancy's brother, Onka Verma. He was very uncomfortable with what had happened and the police reaction. Looking clearly at the facts and the panicky calls he'd received from his sister Nancy after Amajit's disappearance, he couldn't understand why detectives weren't taking it more seriously. They seemed perfectly happy to take on face value the narrative that Amajit had just left in a hurry with his family. So Onka flew from New Zealand to pressure the authorities to investigate the case in more detail. When he arrived at the family home, he added to the growing unease about what had happened to his sister and her family. And at his insistence, the police finally did attend the house. And that was when eventually they began to change their attitude. Really, they had little option. The house was as if the family had just left in a real hurry. Detectives found wet clothes in the washing machine, dishes in the kitchen, an overdue ticket for Mrs Cowell's return flight to India, and significantly, her prayer book, which she kept with her at all times. And it was this last item that was absolutely the sealing fact for Onka. He knew that his mum would never have gone anywhere without her prayer book. No way. It was just too important to her. 
and tellingly, an examination of the family finances revealed that no money had been taken from the family's bank account since the day they all disappeared. Meanwhile, Regan knew he needed to keep the story going to keep the police from his trail. And two weeks after Amrajit disappeared, a letter was received by some of his London relatives and the staff at Seba Freight. It explained that as suspected, the family had needed to leave in a hurry and it confirmed that Amrajit and his family had just had enough of England and were on their way back home to India. But just like the message he'd relayed to Nancy from Amrajit, Regan hadn't done his homework thoroughly and just wasn't as clever as he liked to think. Relatives were immediately suspicious and told police this was very out of character for Amrajit who always wrote letters in his own handwriting. So why would he suddenly change the habit of a lifetime in France and start typing letters? It just didn't make any sense. Detectives were increasingly in agreement with Nancy's brother Onka that something was seriously wrong here. And on the 21st of March 2003, the case was handed over to Scotland Yard's serious crime group. It seemed clear to detectives there that the family had at least been abducted, if not already murdered. But quite why, or by whom, wasn't clear. Through his contacts, Regan knew that detectives had stepped up the investigation. He was spooked, and he feared that it was just a matter of time before detectives placed him at Belinda's farm, and that would mean he would be caught. So he needed to move the bodies, and fast. On the 20th of April, Easter Sunday, he bought a speedboat so the family could be dumped at sea. He returned to Belinda's farm with Hauntsy and Rees for the grim task of digging up the five bodies, and the gang then made the somewhat macabre trip to the south coast. In the speedboat, they motored to the waters off the coast of Dorset and threw the bodies overboard. Can you actually imagine the reality of doing this in the swell out at sea? Meanwhile, detectives were making slow progress, but then a big breakthrough. It was in April 2003 when Regan's friend and recent business partner, Belinda Bruin, made contact and was subsequently interviewed. She told detectives how she'd been away, but returned to Devon earlier than planned on the 20th of February, and when she arrived home she was shocked to find Regan with Hauntsy and Rees digging a trench on her 50-acre farm. Shocked to see him there, Belinda said that when she made a fuss, Regan was almost indignant that she dared to confront him that he was on her land with digging machinery in the gang. Detectives immediately suspected that this is where the bodies have been buried and made plans to dig the farm and find the missing family. Belinda was understandably shocked and the implications of what her land could have been used for was just horrific for her. She immediately spoke to Regan, who absolutely denied he'd been involved in any crime. It was the last conversation they ever had. Once Regan knew Belinda was being interviewed, he knew full well he had to get away quickly, as it was just a matter of time before he was taken into custody. Regan and Hauntsy drove from Tiverton to Bournemouth, where Hauntsy lived, where they quickly threw some stuff into bags, before heading to Seba Freight's offices near Heathrow. At the office, 
Hornsey searched in vain for Regan's laptop computer, but time was running out, so they left without it and caught an overnight ferry from Dover to Calais. Rhys also went on the run, choosing to hide out with a friend in Gloucestershire rather than go to the continent. On the 29th of April, forensic experts arrived at Belinda's farm and began to examine the land. It wasn't long before this brought results and they quickly found DNA evidence that the family had been buried there. Detectives immediately went to Regan's cottage in Wiltshire. It was suspiciously perfect. It was in immaculate condition internally, having been redecorated throughout very recently, and even new carpets had been laid. Despite the most thorough examination, forensic experts were not able to find any evidence of the missing family inside the house. But outside, on a garden wall, there was the smallest speck of blood that was later conclusively shown to have come from Amajit's son Davinda. This showed that the family had in fact been here. The forensics expert said it was a downward drop, which strongly suggested that the toddler was being carried at the time, which fitted with what detectives suspected had happened. And then on the 22nd of April, Three days after Amajit had been dumped at sea, a father and son canoeing off Bournemouth Pier found a body floating in the water close to the pier. It was quickly recovered and found to be Amajit Johan. When his body was found in the sea, it was obvious that Amajit had been restrained and he'd probably died after being strangled. He'd been gagged with packing tape. And further tests confirmed detective suspicions that he'd been heavily sedated when he died. But amazingly, despite the horror he'd been going through being held captive by the gang, Amajit had the presence of mind to conceal a bank letter sent to Regan at the address he was held in Salisbury in his sock. This clue was vital in showing Regan's involvement and also central to its significance was the date on the letter, the 12th of February, showing that Amajit knew or at least suspected that he was going to be murdered. The note was overlooked when the body was first examined and it was only months later when forensic scientists were examining the sock that they discovered the piece of paper. Detective Chief Inspector David Little later explained that though the letter was soaked with seawater, the ink remained legible because it had been folded over many times, always with the ink on the inside. The evidence continued to mount. The speedboat used by the gang to dump the bodies in the English Channel was quickly recovered and traces of Amajit's blood was found on the boat. There was also clear mobile phone evidence linking the gang to the crime. Self-site analysis showed that Amajit was heading towards Stonehenge on the day he was abducted and all three of the gang were in the area at the time and throughout the time that detectives believed he was held against his will. It showed that Reese never ventured far from the house in Forge Close where he was guarding Amajit. But Regan and Hauntsey were placed near Nancy's home on the day that the wider family went missing and significantly they were traced to the area around Belinda Bruin's farm at the time when their bodies were being buried. Amajit's wife Nancy, her body was found in the sea off the Isle of Wight by a fisherman in July 2003 and it was later in the year that her mum, Mrs Cower, was found. Nancy had suffered a violent death, 
with her head suffering severe injuries, probably from a hammer. And by the time her mum was recovered, the body was so badly decomposed that experts were unable to pinpoint the cause of death. Tragically, the family have never had closure on Nancy's two sons, Ravinda and Davinda, as their bodies have never been found. Apparently this can often be the case with bodies that are dumped at sea, although there is a possibility that these two bodies were disposed of, I'm sorry, what a terrible expression, elsewhere. The search was stepped up across Europe to locate Regan, Hornsey and Reese as media interest in the story began to grow. And it wasn't long before Reese was arrested on the 14th of May in a pub in Colford in the Forest of Dean. And on the 2nd of August, Regan, having run out of money in Spain, ah, oh, the irony for the self-styled Captain Cash who so loved to brag about his financial assets. And he was arrested at a campsite in Ghent, Belgium. Not quite the glamorous way he would like to have been caught, and I'm afraid I can't confirm if the arrest was made as he was washing up his plastic cup in the communal kitchen, making small talk about the weather. And it wasn't long until the final member of the gang was also in custody, as on the 2nd of September, Hauntsy, fed up with life on the run, returned to Dover and gave himself up. All three were charged, and at the trial, pleaded not guilty at the Old Bailey. The defence chosen by Reese at his trial was to distance himself from the other two, and he claimed he'd been duped by Regan, who he said he'd always disliked and distrusted. Not the first to think that about Regan. Nobody ever seemed to have a good word to say about him. Regan's strategy at court was interesting, and not what maybe would be expected. He chose not to give evidence himself, but his defence was based around the person we've heard so much about on this podcast, Belinda Bruin. His defence was that Amajit and his family were murdered by a mysterious gang, and his only role had been to dispose of the bodies. And even this was under duress, as he was only doing it for Belinda, as knowing how he felt about her, in fact, as we've said, he regularly lied and told people they were a couple, the Asian gang had threatened to go after Belinda and her daughters. When faced with the difficult issue of the note found in Amajit's sock, Regan reverted to the oldest defence in the book. His defence QC refuted the claim that it was a clue left by Amajit before he died, saying instead this was a police fit-up, due to the lack of evidence in the case and their desire to secure a conviction for the murders. On Tuesday the 5th of July, the jury returned to court after 12 days of deliberation to give their verdicts. Guilty. Kenneth Regan, 55 of Wiltshire, and William Hauntsey, aged 52 of Dorset, were convicted at the Old Bailey of five counts of murder. 39-year-old Peter Rees of Hampshire was found guilty of murdering Amajit, but cleared of killing four others. All were jailed for life, with Regan and Hauntsey given full life sentences. Both showed no emotion as they were sentenced and still maintain their innocence today. Judge Sir Stephen Mitchell, passing sentence, said that they were highly dangerous men. He said, Your crimes are uniquely terrible. The cold-blooded murders of an eight-week-old baby and an 18-month-year-old toddler, not to mention the murders of their mother, father and grandma, provides a chilling insight into the utterly perverted standards 
by which you have lived your lives. Your characters are as despicable as your crimes. Each of you is a practised, resourceful and manipulative liar. Speaking after the trial, Detective Chief Inspector David Little said the crime was the worst he'd ever dealt with. He told the BBC News, All of the officers involved in the case did a fantastic job. It spanned two and a half years, and the conclusion proves the amount of work they put into it. The murder trial, thought to be the longest involving the Met at the time, was estimated to have cost more than £10 million. After the verdict, Nancy's brother Onka, in a statement, said, The verdict, although welcome, is a painful reminder of an indescribable loss. The last two years have been a living nightmare. The deliberate, premeditated slaughter of my innocent family is akin to me being given a life sentence, a life with no laughter, no happiness and no joy. His words were read out by a family friend as Onka was in India, organising his mum's probate. Campaigner Suresh Grover, speaking outside the court, criticised police for not taking the family's disappearance seriously enough until Onka arrived from New Zealand. He said Onka believed the investigation was initially tainted as the police had been influenced by the false stereotype of an Indian businessman who was involved in something dodgy. Predictably, Regan and Hornsey appealed. It was 2014 when Regan said they'd been forced to dispose of the bodies by the Islamic terrorist organisation Al-Qaeda, who threatened to kill them if they didn't. But this, of course, was dismissed without hesitation. In her judgment, Lady Justice Rafferty said, Regan's contention that he did not give evidence because he was threatened by Al-Qaeda is not an arguable ground for appealing. She told both men, the evidence against you was formidable and the case was very fairly and comprehensively summed up. So what do you make of what we've heard these last two weeks? It's just so shocking, isn't it, that someone thinks it's okay to wipe out a whole family for financial gain. I wonder if any of the three men suffered psychologically what they'd done. Did they have terrible dreams and wake up dripping with sweat at three in the morning? Or did they just see murder as just a part of a job they had to do? Whatever they are feeling, there can't be too much doubt that if they were ever freed from prison, they would be a real danger to the public. But all three will die in prison. And I wonder how they feel now in their cells, as you are listening to their stories. Sadly, I fear still no remorse, just self-pity for getting caught. Of course, our sympathies lie with Amajit and his family, and there is really very little left to say except to wish their family and friends all the very best as they continue to try to move on with their lives. It just must have been so terribly, terribly difficult. And finally, thank goodness that Nancy had a brother like Onka. Although in the end, the police did a good job. I think it's fair to say that, like so many other families, unable to get a crime taken seriously, If it hadn't been for Onka's persistence, this is a story we might never have been able to tell. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of true crime, please head over to the Facebook group where there are now almost 6,000 of us. It's a fun place to hang out. And for a support of the Mighty Leeds United, 
there aren't too many places like that right now. And to support the show, why not join me on Patreon for over 30 bonus episodes and other exclusive content for just a pound or two a month. Just think how good supporting me will make you feel. Like the moment that you've turned off the M6, passed the welcome to Rochdale signs, parked up and checked your towel is in the bag before going into the entrance. Just stop and feel that feeling. Anyway, on that bombshell, thanks again for taking the time to listen to the 632nd most popular true crime podcast. So until we speak again, I'm off to get I'm Too Sexy for my podcast t-shirts printed, or maybe Frankie says, listen to true crime. Reckon they'll catch on? But then again, maybe I'll just delay the merch for a bit. Yeah, I think that's probably best. So thanks again for listening. Please get to UKTrueCrime.com for your tickets for the live show and I'll speak with you again next week. Have a good one and despite all the others, please do stay classy. Cheerio for now. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.